0: Um, I was encouraged by those children singing, and well, that's wonderful, <clears throat> just wonderful to listen to the children sing about Jesus, amen? Uh, sadly, in this public school system, of course, they'll take a rendition of some popular pop song and uh, put, uh, you know, your children to sway and move into the beat as they sing a little song, and unfortunately, that's just reinforcing the flesh, and it's so nice to see children stand up and sing for Jesus. And again, we had a few of them up here swaying and popping and moving, all kind of all of kind of stuff. I saw a couple of them doing some shakes and stuff. I, I was watching, and we had a few that were kind of like, you know, looking at the screen instead of the director, because they were so focused on themselves. I won't mention whose child that was. But anyway, they really did a fabulous job, though. Isn't that awesome? I don't know. You know, I... I've often talked about the teenagers, and years through the years, I've always told the teens, I've said, you know, the, you know, the saddest part about um, the youth group was to me, I'd say that so many of you will grow up into your adult years, and you'll look back on those years as the best of your life. That's sad to me. I mean, I, I think you ought to look back on your teen years and the youth group and other things like that, maybe camp and Say, boy, we had some fabulous times, but I don't think it should be the best times of your life. Man, I think you ought to be able to look forward and say, man, we are living the dream right now, buddy. This is awesome. You know, and there's so many of those young people that I know that we've gone to camp with and stuff that are already passed on, some of them from drug overdoses and others from situations where they got mixed up in the wrong kind of things, drunk driving accidents and things, others whose lives are in shambles and wrecked and ruined at this point, and You know, it breaks your heart to watch that, and you think, and you talk to them. If you ever talk to them, they go back and say, boy, I remember when I used to go to camp, and I remember those were the best days. I loved those days. I'll never forget those days. And you think, you could have had those days your whole life if you'd have only walked in the way of God. Boy, it's so sad to watch people throw their lives away. And you know, you can throw your life away no matter how old you are, by the way. You don't have to be a teenager to do that, right, exactly. and so I just want to encourage you, stay stay with it, boy. Watch these young people, these youngsters grow up into teenagers, and then watch them go right on into the singles and right on into adulthood, and, and just be able to watch God do a work in their life. Keep them steady and focused and stable in the Word of God. Just uh, keep them in God's house. 2 Chronicles chapter 9, turn there if you would, we been addressing and dealing with Bohm. we've just been looking at his life a little bit. The first uh, week that we got together, we looked over a couple of his mistakes, and then we started looking at a few truths that we learned along the way, a few truths. The Bible says that uh, there's pleasure in sin for a season. It's amazing how ignorant and how uh, arrogant we can be when it comes to sin, isn't it? It's amazing. You know, we think we can beat it. You know, we'll be the one that somehow uh, escapes the consequences. You know, it'll be me. I, if anybody will, I will. I feel strong. I'm vibrant. I've got health. Uh, you know, you just, boy, you, you just never know. it would be so careful. Yeah. All right, we turn over there to 2 Chronicles chapter 9. And there in verse 22, we begin reading... <clears throat> The Bible says "And King Solomon passed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. And all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom that God had put in his heart. He brought every man his present, vessels of silver and vessels of gold and raiment, harness and spices, horses and mules, a rate year by year. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen. "...whom he bestowed in the chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. He reigned over all the kings of the river, even unto the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. The king made silver, and Jerusalem as stones, and cedar trees made he as the sycamore trees that are in the low plains in abundance. They brought unto Solomon horses out of Egypt and out of all lands." Now, the rest of the acts of Solomon, first and last, are they not written in the book of Nathan, the prophet, and in the prophecy of Ahijah, the Shalonite, and in the visions of Ido, the seer, against Jeroboam, the son of Nebat? Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel 40 years, and Solomon slept with his fathers. He was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his stead. We've been looking at Rehoboam, and we recognize that early on, Rehoboam is going to be a part of somewhat of a coup. There's going to be a divided nation now. It'll no longer be one Israel. It'll be Israel and Judah, the northern tribes and the southern tribe. Now we have Jeroboam leading 10. We have Rehoboam leading basically one plus Benjamin, a portion of Benjamin. What a mess. Division. God's not really pleased with division, although God did intend this to happen, all because there were problems in Jerusalem or in in Israel as a nation. Anytime there's sin and rebellion, anytime there's idolatry, God is going to act. And unfortunately, in this case, he did indeed have to act. And now there are divided kingdoms. Rehoboam will do a good job for the first three years or so. By the fifth year, Shishak, king of Egypt, will come and problems will arise. It's going to be some issues. And so we're going to continue to consider this Rehoboam. Again, as I said, we noted some mistakes, but then we also noted some truths. And one of those truths was that we noted that he strengthened himself. We said that it came to pass in chapter 12, verse 1, when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself, that he forsook the law of the Lord and Israel with him. It seems that Rehoboam had gotten to the place in his life, we said, where he felt that Jeroboam was no longer a threat where all of a sudden now he was in a position where he had the strength, he had the wherewithal, the ability, the, uh, and so forth, that he could protect himself, his city, his nation. <clears throat> it got to the place where it appears that he cast off what appeared to be a basically a feigned faith. He pre- seemed to really believe in God, but in reality, once he felt that he himself was capable and, and the threat was gone, he just said, well, that's all right, I don't need God anymore. And we talked about that a little bit and we addressed it somewhat. We said another truth that we learned was forsaking the law of the Lord is never a good thing. It always turns God's hand against us. We're going to see now again as Shishak, king of Egypt, comes forth to ultimately bring well, havoc, wreak havoc to the uh, people of God. And God's going to stay their hand somewhat because Rehoboam will repent and he will turn. But His heart isn't really ever right with God the way it ought to be because we're going to learn a few other things here in just a few moments. We realized also that whether we realize it or not, to forsake the Word of God is to forsake Him, we said. That was another truth. Then finally, we said we will all humble ourselves at some point, either here on earth or before the Lord. So there was a number of truths that we learned. And so today we want to kind of pick up and we might, it appears we might end and this will be over with. This, uh, just Actually, it was supposed to be a message. It's turned into three, of course. But we're going to talk a little bit about how does it end for Rehoboam? So how does it end for this guy? And um, I want you to turn, if you would, to 2 Chronicles chapter 12, this time verse 13. And we're going to first look at somewhat of a summary of his days or his life. And then we're going to, I'm going to give you three things that basically how it ends for him, three things that point to how it ends. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll just address these things. Father, we love you now, we need you. We just pray that you'd speak to our hearts. Lord, if there be those that are in our midst that are lost without Jesus Christ, I pray you'd bring great conviction upon them. May sin, Father, be real in their lives. May they realize, Lord, that without Jesus Christ, they're going to perish without hope. I pray, Lord, that you'd be with us as believers. May you just, Father, encourage us in your word. May we once again be reminded of how important it is that we center our life or center you in our life, that we place you at the the forefront, that, Father, you are preeminent. Lord, may we give you our best today and into the future. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So here we are in 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 13, and the Bible says, So King Rehoboam strengthened himself in Jerusalem. And reigned. For Rehoboam was one and forty years old when he began to reign. And he reigned seventeen years in Jerusalem. So now Rehoboam is going to reign 17 years. He's 41 plus 17 means that he's 58 years old when he ultimately passes off the scene. Says, and he reigned seventeen years in Jerusalem. The city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother's name was an Ammonitess, And he did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. Now the acts of Rehoboam, first and last, are they not written in the book of Shemaiah, the prophet, and Ido, the seer, concerning genealogies? And there were wars between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, and Abijah, his son, reigned in his stead. Now again, I want you to notice this brief summary of his days or his life. It's amazing how the Bible will ultimately put a person's life and, and kind <clears> of <throat> relegate it to just two or three verses. And in this particular case, we do. We see somewhat of a summary. And I want to really direct your attention at verse 14, because I find it to be extremely interesting. The Bible says, "And he did evil." Because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. The Bible says he did evil, and the question is why? Why did he do evil? Well, according to the passage again, he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. So I guess what we could say is is that preparation is the key. Preparation is the key. Now, what does it mean to prepare? And in this case, we're just talking about simple preparation. Well, if you would look up the definition of prepare, it says in a general sense, to fit, adapt, or qualify for a particular purpose and use, service, or state by any means whatever. To make ready. To make ready. Now, before we ever renovated the buildings, before we ever did anything inside this building to make it look even remotely close to what it looks like today, we went through and we demoed the buildings. We literally tore things out. We had to rip everything out. We gutted this building. We took all the existing walls, virtually almost every single wall, down. We ripped off all the carpet that was on all the walls. We had to pull all the carpet off the floors. I mean to tell you, it was a mess. There were, there were offices up above us, back behind, where now we have the Sunday school and the junior churches and the fellowship hall back there. All of those walls came out. Everything was torn to just to pieces. There was stuff everywhere. Then there was a balcony right out here. As you see, the exit door here, <clears throat> right outside that exit door was a carousel, and right above the carousel was another balcony. That whole balcony came out. The carousel came out. There was a turret back here that spun around. It's right back here outside these doors, and it came around here. All of this is concrete, mind you. There's no wood. There's no, it's all concrete. It's block, all of it. Sledgehammers going crazy. We're breaking everything out, destroying everything in the building. And there is nothing but a major mess in this building. You could have walked through the building, and I should have probably taken a few pictures and threw them up on the screen for you. But it there was just there were there was just debris everywhere in this building. Now, in that particular state, there was not one possibility, not there was no way possible that we were going to be able to begin the process of rebuilding or the process of putting these walls in place. I still remember this stage uh, that that we were running at this point, it was expanded out a little bit because they had uh, kind of extended the stage somewhat. There was a a, a a orchestra pit right underneath us here. We had to fill that in with block, brick, and everything we could find, and then concrete it. But there was these we had these track hose up here on stage, riding in and out, pushing debris out the back door back there. And at this point, there's no walls up. You have to understand. I mean, it just was amazing what was taking place in here. <clears throat> but before we could build anything, before we could put the nurseries in their place, I mean, there were, <laughs> there were freezers that had to come out. There was flooring that had to come up. There were ceilings that came down. It was a mess in here. Preparation was the key. Before we could ever do anything like this, we had to prepare. We had to begin to remove all that debris. It all had to be taken out. There were probably, I don't know how many dumpsters we ordered through the course of that couple of years uh, through that process, but I know it was multiple, one after another, 40-yard dumpsters, 20-yard dumpsters filled to capacity. Oh, I'm sorry, but you can't put that much block and concrete in those dumpsters. You can't do that. You have to fill it halfway. What do you mean? We're buying 20 yards. We're buying 40 yards. It's too heavy. Okay. So we'd fill up the ones with all the other debris, but all the block had to be half. And man, I mean to tell you, it was going out of here like it was going out of style. If we could have got just five cents for every pound of debris that we removed we would have been rich so before we could ever complete a classroom before we could ever put in a rally room complete the auditorium put in the stage put up the screens we had to prepare the area man there's There was a few fellows that would come in, and all they did really was sweep things up from time to time. They'd clean areas up. We'd mess them all up. They'd clean them up. But let me tell you something. You can't accomplish much if there's too much debris, if there's a bunch of dirt and dust and junk everywhere. You can't work around that mess. Nothing gets built as long as all that debris is still laying around. The Bible tells us that he did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. Let's say you're going to go ahead and you're going to repaint your house. Before you can really repaint your house, there's some preparation that has to take place you got to wash off the chalk, the dirt, the mildew. you got to clean that that surface up. After you clean that particular house, you're going to have to scrape and peel off any of the cracked paint. Then you need to sand down those areas. You need to prime that area. Now you're ready for paint. Go ahead and put paint over top of that cracked paint. It doesn't turn out too good, does it? You have to prepare the area to take the paint. Rehoboam, he didn't prepare his heart. You say, what does that mean then? What are we getting at? Well, let's just say it this way. He needed to remove the clutter. He needed to get rid of the garbage. He needed to get rid of the dirt and the dust and all the mess that stood in the way of his heart receiving Christ and the things of God. Now listen, what are you going to do? What am I going to do? If we're going to, I mean, we got to take the time to prepare our hearts to seek the Lord also. So how do we do that? Well, we got to remove the clutter of a lost mentality. You know, we still run around. We got that, that, that uh, flesh that's always trying to function in our life. We got to do our best to crucify that flesh daily. We need to remove the worldly approach that we have to life. We've spent years living our life and functioning in the flesh and old habits are hard to break. We need to remove the clutter of the unsaved mindset. And I know, you know, we can go back and say, well, the Bible says we're a new creature in Christ. We are, but my friend, let me tell you, we can resurrect that old man real quick. We need to remove the garbage of pride in our life and the garbage of sin and selfishness that exists in our hearts. We need to clear away for that new man to establish himself as the new normal. We need to throw away the deeds of the old man and we need to embrace that of the new man. We got to clear our hearts of distraction that may redirect our attention away from God and keep us from truly seeking the Lord. we got to prepare our hearts to seek the Lord. You know, it, it, it'd be ridiculous if, if you were on a quest looking for water and you had a bucket full of rocks. And you arrive at a well and you say, wow, there's some wonderful clear water down there, but your bucket is full of rocks and you try to fill that bucket up of water, let me tell you something, you're wasting your time. You'll never get enough water to sustain your life as long as those rocks are in the bucket. And can I tell you that Rehoboam made a grave mistake. He didn't prepare his heart to to, to seek the Lord and when he didn't prepare his heart, he filled the bucket up with a bunch of rocks and there was nothing for God to do. But stand by and go, well, you're going to prepare your heart? I'm here. I want to get involved. I want to fill you, and I want to use you, and I want to, but you're carrying a bunch of garbage around. I can't do nothing with that. We do the same thing. God's ready to bless us and God's ready to pour out his spirit on us. God wants to do a mighty work in our life and he's saying just seek me and we're seeking him but we got our buckets full of the flesh, buckets full of life itself, buckets full of the past and he says listen, empty those first and then I'll fill them. So how's it end for Rehoboam? First of all, it ends in great loss. Great loss. Notice 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 9. Let me go back just a few verses. The Bible says, So Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took all. He carried away also the shields of gold which Solomon had made. Now King David had prepared for the temple throughout the twilight of his years. He was coming to the end of his life and to the end of his reign and he began to prepare for the temple to be built. He himself was not permitted to do that honor but his son was going to do it and so David began Preparing. Then comes Solomon. And Solomon steps into the shoes of David and begins the work of the temple. An amazing temple is built. Solomon spent years building both the temple and his house. He spent untold riches furnishing them. Now just five years after Rehoboam reigns, Five years after Rehoboam takes over the kingdom from his father Solomon, the king of Egypt comes up against Jerusalem and carries it all away. Just five years after his daddy passes. You and I can't even begin to fathom how much was really taken by Shishak. We can't even wrap our minds around it. I want you to consider some of the richest men in history. Now, we're going to adjust their, what they call, personal peak net worth. Peak net worth, okay? That's, how, that's the word they were using, but either way, it just means a lot of money. Listen to this. Bill Gates, $144 billion. $144 billion. That's all right. Listen to this one. Henry Ford, Ford Motor Company. Again, adjusting for present-day inflation, his money in the time in which he lived would have been valued at over $200 billion. Can you imagine that? By the time he he dies, at at the peak of his financial success, $200 billion he was worth. Andrew Carnegie, $337 billion. Not million, billion. John D. Rockefeller, his peak personal net worth, 367 billion. Now hold on to your seat for a moment. Solomon enters into the picture. Talking about Solomon now, we're not necessarily talking about his entire kingdom, we're talking about his personal wealth. Over two trillion. I can't even wrap my mind around that. And you say, well, how do you know that? Because I got it off the internet and it's always right. (laughs) I don't know what you're laughing about. (laughs) Can you imagine? Okay, so say they're off by a trillion. I mean, think about this for a minute. Think about what Rehoboam inherited from his father. Think about the house that he lived in. Think about the gold and the unbelievable treasures that literally Solomon had accumulated. <laughs> and then there's the temple. This has to, it leaves us speechless. It's interesting when you consider Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, turn to chapter two, verse 18 and 19. It's interesting how he addresses this issue, but he points out the vanity of accumulating wealth and material gain only to die and leave it to those who are less worthy of it. Look what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter two, verse 18 and 19. I'm, I'm always, oh, let's just look at this first. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes <2:18. clears> 2.18. He says, yea, I hated all my labor. <clears throat> Why would you hate your labor? Which I had taken under the sun. How's come, Solomon? Because I should leave it under the man that shall be after me. And who knoweth whether he, sh- he-, he shall be a wise man or a fool? Yet shall he have rule over all my labor wherein I have labored and wherein I have shewed myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity. Man, old Solomon says, listen, i am telling you what, when I think about all the hard work I put in, when I consider all the effort that I've made in order to accumulate what I have accumulated and to accomplish what I have accomplished only to leave it to somebody else, not knowing whether they'll be foolish or whether they'll be wise with it, he says, man, it, it, it bothers me. It really gets to me. Solomon leaves it to his son, Rehoboam, and five years later, it's all taken. I'm going to say something, you don't have to agree with it. But let me tell you something. I don't believe it's very wise to leave our children with multi million dollars or hundreds of thousands or thousands and thousands of dollars. I don't think that's wise. I think you leave them with a heritage, but not with a financial one. You leave them with a legacy of spiritual and, and, and practical wisdom. And I'm going to tell you something. You train your children how to work, and you give them the character that they need to make it in life. Leave them something if you will, but you be real careful about leaving all this. I'm going I'm to leave a tremendous inheritance for my children. Why? So they can waste it? You know what I found? I found that if you didn't work for it, you probably don't appreciate it anyway the way you should. And I don't, I'm, not ta- I'm talking about even good kids. <clears throat> now, I can talk like that, and I can talk like that with authority because my dad's already told me I'm getting nothing. <laughs> so I don't want anybody else to enjoy life. <clears throat> <laughs> But really, when you think about it, old Solomon, he had prepared a lifetime to leave this wonderful inheritance, to give his children this security, and then his son loses it in five years. Now, Again, I'm not opposed to leaving something for our kids. I I think we ought to. You know, if we're able to, by all means do so. But you know what I think? I think we ought to probably leave something to God's work. That's going to live on for eternity. Well, the rest of it burns up, that'll live on. Right. The prosperity, the notoriety, the success that Solomon had accumulated and enjoyed came crashing down following his death. <clears throat> Rehoboam, how'd it end? Yeah, great loss. Number two, how'd it end? Oh, you're going to like this because it plays right into the hand of our morning series. He settled. He settled. Shishak, of course, in verse 9, had removed all the shields of gold that Solomon had made, the Bible tells us. I want you to notice how Rehoboam responds. Look in verse 10 now, chapter 12, verse 10. We noted in verse 9 that Shishak came and took all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. Now we see in verse 10, Instead of which, King Rehoboam made shields of brass and committed them to the hands of the chief of the guard that kept the entrance of the king's house. Rehoboam has just lost gold shields. He makes brass shields. He settled. He settled. Can I tell you that it's sad, but it seems to me that every generation seems to settle for less. Now, there are exceptions to that rule, I understand that, but there are not many. Each generation possesses fewer convictions, it seems, less courage, and lower expectations while they grow ever increasingly arrogant, self-centered, and immoral. You say, I don't believe it. Look around you. Every generation seems to grow weaker, less convicted, and more unwilling to stand and fight for anything. It seems to me that in this day and age in which we live, we take what we can get instead of risking all that we have for a brighter future. Why risk it? Let's just settle for what we've got. And I believe that's exactly what Rehoboam did Rehoboam figured you know what I don't know I mean okay it's a bummer I just lost all of this money I lost all of these shields I lost all of this gold and silver I lost all of this wealth that had been accumulated but then again I look around me I got I'm still doing all right you know brass will be fine it's just going to have to do what other option do I have I'd have to kill myself to make them gold again. We'll we'll settle for some brass. You know, our founding fathers, they paid an awful price to secure the freedoms that you and I so often take for granted or even willingly forfeit in order to avoid conflict and confrontation. John Adams said, you will never know how much it costs my generation to preserve your freedom. I hope you'll make a good use of it. You'll never know, he said. And can I tell you, I will never understand what the founding fathers had to endure and go through and what the people that lived in that day went through to provide the freedoms that we now have. To take the Constitution and literally just, whoop, those are notes. Make sure I don't tear the ones I need. And literally go, I'm gonna tell you something. People in our government today who are doing that to our Constitution have no idea what the price was that was paid to provide it. <clears throat> Benjamin Franklin said, "They who would give up an essential liberty for temporary security deserve neither liberty or security." You think about those things. Benja, uh, uh, listen, they wouldn't settle for anything less than pure liberty. Pure freedom. Freedom wasn't just a topic they spoke about, but a non-negotiable they gave their lives for. Patrick Henry made the statement, and it's a very popular one. He said, I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. The patriotic view of liberty and freedom has been long lost and abandoned by most today. The idea that one would lay down their lives for such an ideal can hardly even be imagined. It's hard for us to even wrap our minds around. Give your life for what? What if nobody else joins in? You'll have wasted your life. Again, the value of liberty is found in the price that it costs. And most of us, let's be honest, haven't had to pay the price for liberty or freedom there may be a few in here that have put their life on the line for us. That heard the bullets whiz by their heads. Saw their friends blown up. There may be a few in this crowd that have had to pay the price for freedom. But most of us take it for granted more than we'll ever imagine or understand. If it isn't worth much, it's certainly not worth dying for. Sadly enough, that's where Rehoboam was. I mean, he didn't pay the price for the riches he possessed. It didn't cost him anything. It just fell into his lap. And when they were taken, he was content to settle for less rather than to fight to secure them or to rescue them. He was probably unhappy with losing the treasure. Anybody that has lost money in the stock market or in your bank account or been ripped off, knows you don't like losing money. But in his case, Shields of Brass would do. I wonder, have we become content with some things over the last year? You know, content with things like a subpar prayer life, a lackluster time in the Word of God, a mundane experience in the house of God, maybe a going-through-the-motions type of relationship with Jesus Christ? I mean, have we settled for things? I mean, he settled. How'd it end for you? Well, honestly, it ended with some great loss, and I settled Listen to how, how else it ended finally. Rehoboam left an evil, evil legacy. He left an evil legacy. I think of everything that we see at the end of his life, this is the worst. Rehoboam would reign for 17 years in Jerusalem. His journey started on a rocky note. We noted that early on in our series. But soon after, he was leading Judah into prosperity and success. But that success was short-lived. He found himself on the wrong side of God. Can I tell you, as we mentioned already, you find yourself on the wrong side of God, you find yourself on the wrong side. Oh, I know you can't see God. God. I know that there's questions in the minds of many as to whether or not he even exists. It's a pretty big chance to take, though. When you close your eyes in death and you stand before the God, the creator of the universe, and you say, Well, you got to understand, I grew up in a culture where they said you weren't real. So you got to give me a pass. He says, The only pass you got is right into hell, Buster because you rejected my son Jesus Christ who I personally sent for you and you neglected him. You rejected him. How sad is that to think that there will be people who honestly think they did the right thing but will stand before God and they will not get a free pass into heaven. We have got to share the truth. They're not gonna get it in the public school system. They're not gonna get it over social media. They're not gonna get it anywhere else but from a Bible-believing, blood-bought saint of God. He would humble himself at one point early on, and he had escaped the wrath of God to some degree. But when it was all said and done, God would point out a very sad and dismal truth. Look at verse 14. We've already noted it, but notice he says, And he did evil. He did evil. He did evil. What a sad commentary for a life. This is being written at the end of his life. It's summarizing his life. He did evil. You know, I'm sure when his family and friends gathered for his funeral, (laughs) they pointed out all the good things that Rehoboam had done in his life. You know, I can only imagine they, they came to the podium like this and they stood before the crowd and they said, they, they shared with the crowd how hard a worker he was. He was such a hard worker. I remember we were sweating together. We were working hard together. Then somebody else steps up and they point out how, oh, he loved God. He loved his country. He loved his family. And he loved his friends. Then as others step up and say, Oh, you just can't imagine, as they listed the accomplishments and they related the and they they talked about the progress that he had made. They talk about what he had done in his administration and what he had brought to pass. And people were like, wow, he did do a lot, didn't he? They, t- they shared s- touching stories about him, his family, and his life. They related fond memories. But we have to remember always that that's the assessment of flawed beings. Because then the creator of all the universe steps up to the plate, and he comes behind the podium. Can me have your attention, please. I have something to say in closing. The Creator God, the perfect judge of all the universe, and He did evil. Huh? He did evil. That sounds rather cold and insensitive. And yet, as we look at the summation of his life in the book of Chronicles, that's exactly what the creator God said. Because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. He did evil. See, the books of, First King, of, the books of Kings and the book of Chronicle, they mirror the same portion of time. However, they're from different perspectives. On one hand, we have kings that sees things basically from man's side, an earthly view. On the other, we look at Chronicles, and Chronicles looks at it from God's side, looking down on to man, a heavenly viewpoint, not an earthly viewpoint like kings, but a heavenly viewpoint. And now we have God's assessment of this man. And so in Chronicles, we read, and he did evil. Can you imagine? he' <laughs> come to my funeral, and everybody's, oh, he was such a good father. He was such a good person. He was such, and God steps up and says, he was evil. I don't know about you. I want to believe my, I'd want to believe Miss O'Donnell. I'd want to believe the kids. I'd want to believe all those people, but if God said it, it's got to be true. I'm not saying there wasn't something good about him. I'm not going to say that there wasn't some earthly value, but I will say God's giving us the real bird's eye view here. What a contrast of opinion. See, how mankind perceives the accomplishments and efforts of a life can significantly differ from that of God who views both the deed and the motive. He sees the heart, too. He sees us from the inside and not only the outside. And the Bible clearly states that the eyes of the Lord see everything and everywhere. In Proverbs 15, 3, the Bible says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. See his eyes. See far deeper than those in the world. And those in the world can see. Far deeper than they can see. His eyes penetrate the human heart. I mean, they see into the soul. They they, they can evaluate the inner man and they unearth the deepest, darkest secrets of our minds and our emotions. Hebrews 4.13 says, Neither is there any creature that's not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open into the eyes of him whom we have to do. Do you know Rehoboam's son... Abijah would reign in his stead. But sadly, he would follow in his father's footsteps. Matter of fact, in 1 Kings 15, 3, the Bible says, And he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father. You get that? He walked in all the sins of his father. What an evil legacy he left. I wonder today as we close, what kind of legacy will you leave? In 10 or 15 or 20 years, what will be said about your children? They're a chip off the old block. Is that good or bad? I heard people on the radio talking about Tom Brady. Now, he came off of a boat drunk the other day. They were talking about how that was so good to see him that way because it made him kind of, he was able to get in touch with normal people now. He seems like such an untouchable now, at least. He's just like a normal guy. He's 43 years old, a wife and a couple kids. And man, he's just finally, you know, I'm not saying we're not promoting irresponsibility, they said. But it's nice to see that he's normal. Listen, I I gotta believe Tom Brady's probably a pretty good guy. I don't know, I have no reason to believe otherwise. I, I don't think I want my kid being raised by him, though. I want a godly legacy. Again, I'm not saying he's a bad guy. Listen to me, he's just worldly, he doesn't know any better. He needs Jesus Christ. But we do know better. We do know better. What kind of legacy will we leave our children? Rehoboam didn't end good for him. Great loss. He settled and he left an evil legacy. May God help us to leave the right kind of legacy for our children and their futures. What steps do you need to take in order to prepare your heart to seek the Lord tonight? What clutter, what trash, what dirt, dust, debris is standing between you and seeking the Lord? I mean, really seeking the Lord. Father, we come to you. We ask you, Lord, just to speak to our hearts and work in our lives today. You are good to us. And Lord... We are just flesh, we're humans, we're just struggling. And Lord, there's not one of us in this room today that doesn't need to heed a simple admonition like this, a warning like this. Lord, help us, Father, to be very careful what we allow our eyes to see, what we allow our ears to hear, what we permit ourselves to think and even to do. Realizing and recognizing, Lord, that ultimately we're going to leave a legacy. Father, help us to prepare our hearts. Too many times we might even be going through the motions and doing all the right things, but our hearts not right. And Lord, the paint's just not sticking because we haven't cleaned up enough. And Lord, we want your best, but we won't get it till we've prepared our heart to seek you. Lord, be glorified now in this time and do your work in our lives. And Lord, again, if there be any that are without you that have yet to settle their soul salvation, give them the courage to leave their seat, come forward and see myself or Brother Kavanaugh at the front and we'll take a Bible and get somebody to show them how to be saved, how to know Christ as their Savior and settle it once and for all. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all